0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your devoted host, and today uh, we are very pleased to have with us Dr. Orna Ophir, um, and we will be discussing with her her book on the borderland of madness, psychosis, psychoanalysis, and psychiatry in post war USA, published by Rutledge 2015. Um, a few words about uh, Dr. Ophir before we get into the interview. She's a clinical psychologist and a practicing psychoanalyst in private practice here in New York City. She holds a PhD in the history of science. She's an adjunct associate professor at the Humanities Center at Johns Hopkins University. She is also an adjunct clinical assistant. Professor of Psychology in Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College and on the faculty at the Institute for Psychoanalytic Education, congrats, I didn't know this, Um, (laughs) affiliated with the School of Medicine at NYU. Um, among her publications are the book we'll be speaking um, to her uh, with her about today, and she also has a chapter um, in the book on love and forgiveness. And currently she's working on a second book project entitled Klein in America, The Marginalization of Melanie Klein in American Psychoanalysis. So welcome, Orna Ophir. Hello. Hi. Hi. So um, every person that we speak to... Um, in uh, New Books and Psychoanalysis, we asked this first question to get things started. And um, it's a very simple question. Uh, what drove you um, to write this book? Oh, so I'm,
1: I'm happy to be with you finally. It's been a <laughs> long, long time in the making. <laughs> We've
0: been working on it, yeah. Yes. <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh,
1: so the short answer is um, a sense of urgency. Uh, you know, a feeling of uh, a, a loss of a significant part of my professional life, and the urge to learn everything I can about it, so so I can repair it or, or make a difference. Mm-hmm. The long answer is to begin with, I never thought I'd write a book. So when and when I was a kid, I wanted to fly airplanes like my father. <laughs> So, I did a lot of science in school, uh, but then I realized that what I really liked and was actually good at was art. So, when I was done with my army service, um, I thought I should pursue my passion and went to uh, Bezalel Academy of Art in Jerusalem. And I studied there for a year and found that while I was making art, I was... uh, Challenged, not to say attacked by uh, all kind of ideas and emotions that were uh, both fascinating and frightening. So somehow I fell, f- fell back on my old training in the sciences and I went to study psychology. Mm-hmm. But while I was doing it, I found that I'm mostly interested in pathology, in psychopathology mm-hmm. uh, and in psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. So but I did feel that there was something about the studies themselves that was too theoretical, and I needed some real-life experience uh, to learn from. So when I was a sophomore undergraduate student, I began to volunteer in a psychiatric hospital uh, that was known for, uh, for its uh, psychoanalytic orientation. And I was so uh, fascinated by what I saw there, you know, by the behavior and the language and the gesture, uh, you know, the, the world that these patients um, live in or that what I, at least what what I was imagining that they live in. and But also by the way that the staff members were thinking about uh, these people. So in case conferences, in the grand rounds, um, even in just everyday conversation. Um, so I stayed there for the rest of my undergraduate year, and um, and I think this was part of, probably the most important part of my schooling. And it was a very special school for me. Um, uh, it was the beginning of the 90s, and uh, out of seven heads of departments, in the hospital, five were psychoanalysts in the Israeli Psychoanalytic Society. Um, It's an old society that was established by uh, Max Addington in 1934. And even the director of the hospital uh, was a Jungian psychoanalyst.
0: Amazing, Uh, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, it was. It was like a different world. Uh, It was a fascinating group of patients And a very, very solid group of analysts that I was so lucky to uh, be in touch with. And you have to imagine that these analysts were working in a public setting. So they were treating psychotic people, mainly schizophrenic patients, who came from all walks of life. Uh, In Israel, there are no, at least there were no, I don't know what happened lately, uh, Israel is being... um, americanized gradually
0: but rapidly yeah
1: rapidly so um at least when i was working there were no private psychiatric hospital in israel so basically this was a a place where you could see rich people and poor people uh orthodox jews and uh, secular people educated people and people who had no education of whatsoever uh old people young people soldiers that um you know, had the crisis during their army service. And each of them had their own psychotic world, and each of them was discussed very seriously by this remarkable um, and very committed group of analysts. So when I went to graduate school to become a clinical psychologist, I returned to this hospital, Shalvata Mental Hospital, First for an externship and later for an internship, um, and I was in a ward that it was an open ward with uh, the the head of was um, Dr. Ilan Travis. He was a student of Harold Searles. Okay. So when oh, he wow. was a, when he was a young psychiatrist, he came to Chestnut Lodge for a fellowship, and he was very influenced by by Syrles. Okay. So after I graduated, I came back to work at the hospital. Now as a specialist, it was the early 2000. So it's basically only something like 12 years after I began my right. schooling there. But when I returned, I noticed that there was only one psychoanalyst left in this whole institution. Uh, the rest have retired and uh, no new psychoanalyst uh, was hired. And also it there was no longer uh this kind of conversation you know this kind of discourse um that was used to speak about patients about therapists about what is happening in the room mm. so i felt that we um that we were now somehow working for <laughs> psychopharmaceutical companies right. there was a lot of clinical trials going on in the uh, in the hospital, new drugs, and a lot of biological language. Um, there was a project of you know deep uh, brain stimulation, and uh, right. and it was completely the discourse of the brain taking over the the story of the mind. Right. So I decided that it's a too big of a loss for yeah. me. Yeah. And I wanted to study what happened there, what what happened during this decade. And uh, since I was a clinician by then, I had to look for uh, training as a historian. And I wanted to be, uh, you know, to be a, a historian of this specific field. So, and I, it was also important for me to have uh, a, an intellectual community that would support this project. Uh, and I was very lucky to find my, uh, what we call in, in Israel, doctor Fater, it's uh, the advisor, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, Professor Joseph Bruna, who is himself a historian of psychoanalysis. And um, I started to uh, write this book at the Coin Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Ideas. And basically, this mentorship in this community um, was what allowed me to, for seven years, to to do this, uh, to write this book, to do the research. And as a young student, I worked as a journalist, so the writing was pretty much not a problem. Okay. But the big challenge was the shift from being a clinician to becoming a historian, and this required. You 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 know that as somebody who who've been through this training, but it it required many years of training, and I feel that it's still, you know,
0: it, I I still continue
1: this training okay. to this of very course. day.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, I, it's very moving, and I'm just thinking about you, you yourself embody. You know, you you lived through the change. I mean, you know, you're not, you know, an old person. You're you know a, a Clinician for what twenty some odd years, but you actually where you started and then where you came back. You went back home, and it was as if the house had been burned down. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, so I I could understand that trying to see how you went from a world that um, really engaged you to a world where uh, it was probably a lot less engaging when you returned to the hospital. If if people weren't working if you, your passion was psychoanalysis and uh, everyone was doing you know as they were doing here at you know uh, at the psychiatric institute you know all the brain studies like on schizophrenia that was it you know so yeah.
1: it's,
0: very, it's a move, it's a it's a moving tale because it's personal yes um, very personal um so in in reading this book um it's clearly to my mind, it was clearly, I mean, I know Orna, right? And we're (laughs) friendly and, you know, we, we travel in a, you know, a a pack of psychoanalysts who are, Mm -hmm. who are friends. And, um, but I, you know, so as I'm reading this book, I'm having this experience of thinking I'm also trained as an historian and as an analyst. And I'm thinking, you know, it fascinates me the clinical mind and the historical mind. And what is the relationship between the two? I, I always would say I, I do, history with a capital H with a small H, you know, I do Mm. two kinds of history. Um, And there's no doubt this is the work of a, of a clinician um, Mm. to my mind, because the the way in which you end the book, which is fantastic, you, you create an emotional experience that it sort of offers a a really um, uncomfortable in some ways, interpretation that is um, evocative, um, Mm. which we may get to as we, as we speak. But I want to ask you what, how would you describe um you know how does your work as a clinician um what impact does it have on your thinking or your work as an historian?
1: So you know, it's uh Paul Paul Ricoeur in his um in his narrative function, mm-hmm. writes that uh, history is is a tale told about the past in the present for present purposes Mm -hmm. and i think that this is also what we do as analysts as as clinicians somehow we're meeting the past in the present and we try to find all this missing parts of the story Um, and we know that they are not really lost we know that they are transcribed somewhere uh, and in symptoms on the body acting out inhibition and I think, or, or at least I hope, that uh, being a very specific type of clinician, so I was trained in the Kleinian tradition, um, that I'm working with uh, this kind of, uh, you know, Freud's hermeneutic of suspicion. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And we find it in, in in many histories, in the Marxist tradition and uh, Foucault's genealogy. But um. It's rather than somehow finding a moment in history or reconstructing the past. Um, I'm trying more to to find some hidden uh, patterns, if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do find some kind of parallels. That I'm, you know, it's not fully uh, elaborated in my mind, but it's it's an, it's an intuition, or it's still in the stage of intuition that. The paradigms that I'm looking for uh, when I do a historian work are somewhat like the fantasies that um, yes. that that we find in patients. That there there is some underlying uh, thoughts uh, of scientists, or in my case, you know, analysts, that are shaping the the, the way they are thinking. And and we see it also as clinician when we work with patients that. There are unconscious fantasies that are shaping the patient's uh, thoughts, their dreams, their uh, wow. symptoms, um, their defenses, their uh, object relations. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a historian of scientists or, or thinkers and their ideas, because this is what I do, I find myself somehow following the fantasies that my, uh, my, my scientists, my, my analysts are entertaining about their uh, object, that the object that they study. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during the controversial discussions uh, in London uh, during uh, World War II um, between the Anna Freudians and the Melanie Kleinians, uh, Marjorie Burley, who is from from the enemy camp, from the Anna Freudian—I'm joking—but yes. she remarked that uh, that she criticized the Klein and she said that if they uh, equate mental functions with with their subjective interpretation of it, um, then psychoanalysis could not claim to be uh, more scientific than the Chinese peasant who interprets the uh, eclipse. As um, the sun being swallowed by a dragon, mm-hmm. and Paula Hyman, who was a great supporter of Klein at that time, replied that uh, psychoanalysis is, is, or psychoanalytic science, is not like uh, astronomy. It's it's not like we're studying the natural world and you know like we study the solar system, but it's precisely the mind of the Chinese peasant as it creates this kind of theory that we study. And this is what I do as a historian. I want to know how this kind of knowledge develops in the mind of my peasants. Uh, And my peasants are psychoanalysts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in other words, um, what I'm trying to do is to expose uh, what is going on in the mind of the subject that I'm studying and this could be patients, and it can be analysts. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, if if we go back to the idea of, of uh, writing history with this uh, suspicion, like with this, this hermeneutic of suspicion, then it's always also important for me to keep in check that uh, my suspicion about what is hitting in there uh, doesn't turn into paranoia. <laughs> meaning that you know i'm not i won't be looking for what I'm already convinced that I would find right right, right. um so you know eve Cedric has this idea of paranoid reading and more reparative readings so I'm trying to do the more uh, <laughs> the more reparative one
0: right i mean i was thinking um what what did you find i mean in doing this research um which is um you know, largely a, a sort of content analysis, I would say, you know, as, as working as an intellectual historian of some of the major psychoanalytic journals and also um, the Schizophrenia Bulletin um, and some others. Um, I, was, I was wondering, as you were doing all this reading and sorting through, you know, all these ideas over the course of, you know, whatever, 60-some-odd what, years, uh, mm-hmm. what surprised you? Did anything, like did, like when you're talking about, you know, rather than writing what it is you think you know, because you did live through something. Yes. You know? so, so what, is, did anything surprise you in terms of uh, what you learned as you were doing the research that you didn't expect to see?
1: I guess that what surprised me were the many American psychoanalysis that I found. So when I came to this research, I thought, you know, I have one, Thought collective, I have one um, um, group that I'm trying to uh, um, figure out what they were doing, how they destroyed my my uh, <laughs> my my hospital uh, and I found that there were many uh, many um, colors and and um, many different groups within this specific group. Mm-hmm and you know you mentioned that um i was reading um the the kind of publication uh, that i was using this kind of professional journals mm-hmm. and um and in a in an informal uh, uh incident you asked me about why not uh speaking to these people mm-hmm. uh, right, what, in my oral history, my, right yes well why was I maybe I was paranoid enough not to meet them just to uh, <laughs> <laughs> sit sit in libraries uh and I was thinking about it um because um it it it's a good idea and you know there are there are many stories to tell and and there are many ways to tell this story and I thought that you know um your idea to perhaps be surprised by meeting people Mm -hmm. and actually listen to uh, their own um, stories Uh, was a beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful idea and could have, you know, created a a great story. Mm
0: -hmm. What's, I think it's, you know, my, my background as a historian is in the historian of medicine and more of a social and cultural historian. So I was, you know, as as I was reading this, I was like, "What would it be like if we could find these some some of these people and and really and and get them talking and see what were people? You know, there's what people write, and then the, there's what they're actually doing, right. and um. So what we we understand sort of the official discourse and how it changed, and this book is very powerful in that you can really. I mean, Orna just very, very close reading of the ways in which the discourse changed, every twist and turn it took on the yes. road. You know, from the conflicted, you know, the sort of the ego defect to like a, you know, a, a brain disorder, right? Right. Um, but it's always just my, I was just thinking, what would it be, you know, what would it be like to, um, you know, to get, to get somehow like people at Riggs, you know, people yes. who, you know, I mean, I know, you know, Anna, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, Silver and, you know, from yes. Chestnut Lodge, et cetera. Yes. It would just yes. be, it would be. Always. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I did, you know, I was, I was, um. I was very much inspired by uh, Ludwig Fleck, who was um, was, a uh, Polish-Israeli microbiologist, basically, but who, uh, long before uh, Thomas Kuhn, uh, you know, and his idea of paradigm shifts, and long before Foucault's ideas of the epistem, he developed this idea of uh, thought collectives and um this this i this was basically the first system of of a sociology of science mm-hmm. um and it's interesting because he has this idea that um you know our scientific facts are social construct so it's not um yeah you know people perceive and think differently mm-hmm. but that these differences are concerning groups more than the individual. Mm -hmm. So he wrote about thought collectives, Mm -hmm. and he saw cognition as a collective activity. Mm -hmm. So he was interested in in not in the individual practitioner, but in this community of people who were, you know, by exchanging ideas, by maintaining uh, an intellectual interaction, um, you know they transform ideas, but not in their own heads, but also uh, perhaps first of all in in this interpersonal space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, he was uh, he wasn't so much interested in the individual scientists, say how uh, Anne Louise uh, Silver got to know a uh, phenomena like P. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he would say that uh, individual X let's say individual and Louis Silver from Chestnut Lodge, uh, got to know this p this phenomenon of psychosis in a specific style of thought, which is also one of his um, concept and in a specific epoch. So it, it's, it's, and it, it doesn't matter who this X individual would be. Um, uh, who, this this individual who I might uh, indeed have interviewed, uh, but it's more the the thought collective mm-hmm. that uh, he or she belonged to, mm-hmm. and so I, I was interested in in the ways this kind of body of knowledge developed um, as a result of the exchange of ideas between a group of people um, and. Um, so it's, it's more um, this thought collectives as they are formed in this kind of exchange in these specific publications. Mm-hmm. And this, this was the thing that surprised me. Uh, you asked me about the surprise mm-hmm. that I saw that these different psychoanalytic journals are represented very different uh, thought styles.
0: Yes, and what is really clear is, or, or part of the story you tell is that um, you know Americans who publish in Japa versus the Americans who are publishing in the IJP. It's that the you know, many analysts, um, as the sort of the brain, you know, or, or the um, uh, ideas about, um, as you call it, the neo-Somatic, um, took hold. Um many American analysts uh who were uncomfortable with that um with the uh, ascendance of that way of thinking um it seems that you know they they turned to Europe and um published more in the i j p um right yeah so i mean it was very right you really felt- and i really felt for them i was like they're like well i can 't stay around in my home you know? yeah i can 't yeah. stay home anymore Right you know you couldn't go back to the hospital. it was different these- Amer- right. american right. French you know,
1: it's like yeah, just search- yeah. searching for was,
0: searching for a home, yeah, um, A port in the storm, yeah, Yeah. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely, so let's talk about um I had never heard this term, I mean, I don't know you know where I've been, maybe it's popular, uh, and I'm just no, like adamant, no. or <laughs> maybe it's just your your term uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's the but you refer to um the neo somatic revolution. Um, and so right. I want you to sort of let the listeners know um, wh- what is this concept and to educate the listeners about what, what makes it a revolution.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the, as I said, as, as a historian, what I'm, I'm trying to do is uh, not only uh, follow the debates or the conflicts in the profession, but also to put it in a larger context. You know, in the uh, whether it's political or economical, or uh, you know, the big pharma's, the DSM, the, the decade of the brain, and um, I'm trying to to makes intervention in this uh, in this um, uh, debate, and this new somatic uh, revolution is um, something that I came up with. Um, which refers uh-huh. to. It's, uh, your, it's your word. Hope, okay. I hope so. <laughs> I've, I've never heard it before. I used it, so uh, I, I, I think I, I came up with it because and English um, is
0: not your first language, and you you invented a new word. I just yes. in English. <laughs> I love it. No.
1: You know, perhaps it's there, so I, I cannot, uh, uh, you know, I cannot take ownership of the term. But the 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 idea that I had of a neo-Somatic Revolution had to do with, um, you know, the kind of repetition that I see. Just like as we spoke, uh, you know, as clinician, we see this kind of repetition. The same we see in in um, in intellectual discourses, and and in practices. And the one thing I found uh, in w- while I was doing my research is that there is a repetition in American psychiatry um, of this uh, conflict, of this um, um, constant debate, um, and and Tanya Luhrmann's, uh in. Uh, wrote this anthropologist wonderful anthropologist uh, has a, uh, her one of her books title is of two minds and it's about psychiatry so that there is always the struggle between in psychiatry between seeing the problem and the remedy of the psychotic patient as located in a, either in the mind or in the brain or if you want either in the psyche or in the soma so and the pendulum constantly shifts back and forth but American psychiatry um began with um moral treatment you know it began with psychological treatment it was, it was trying to avoid the old somatic remedies of Hippocrates and Galen, uh, you know, that were based on, on the humoral theory. So instead of uh, cupping and purging and bleeding, uh, they offered uh, some, somewhat uh, a more enlightened uh, treatment, more psychosocial. And... Um, it came with an emphasis on a more uh, humane way of seeing the patient, so not seeing the patient as a, as a body, as a wild animal who was lost her reason, but as someone who needs to learn uh, gradually how to take responsibility. So it was not as if the somatic, the old somatic treatment was completely gone, but it dramatically changed uh, during the early uh, 19th century from, you know, weeping and beating and using all kinds of uh, chemicals to an emphasis on the body, but in a very different way. You know, uh, they, they would make sure that the patient ate healthily and that they were walking and that they were being active uh, with gardening or sewing, And um, more importantly, they were being psychologically understood and we in an environment that was therapeutic, you know, uh, Kirkbride plan of these beautiful asylums in the countryside with big gardens and water. But this was uh, a beautiful project uh, that um, where where this kind of non somatic tradition, um, traditional treatment was offered, uh, but it grew enormously. So the population in these uh, asylums grew uh, in, in a way that uh, would not allow for this kind of um, psychosocial treatment to continue. They were, um, by the end of the 19th century, they were uh, overcrowded, underfunded, and American psychiatry needed to completely transform itself and, and the way it treated the insane and since they were seen by their fellow physicians and mainly the neurologists as administrators or uh, managers of the insane, they, they, back then they were even uh, called superintendent. Right. Um, and they were, you know, uh, neurologists uh, devalue them, saying that, you know, their only worries were gardening and plumbing and heating. So they needed somehow to align themselves uh, with what was considered science and progress. So they needed to start to think in terms of, you know, diagnosis and treatment that would resemble uh, the the more established medical uh, science and practices. So the, during the first few decades of the 20th century,
0: uh, as
1: part of this effort, you know, to become more medical, more scientific, Uh, psychiatry also introduced some of the most uh, horrific, radical somatic treatments that uh, uh, that the the profession would ever known. And, you know, in a bizarre way, they also uh, earned two uh, um, Nobel Prizes for them. But we saw, uh, you know, fever therapies, uh, you know, uh, caused by uh, malaria. Uh, There was Henry Cotton in the Trenton Insane Asylum Hospital that uh, was um, removing teeth and tonsils and and ovaries and whatever, because, you know, the thought was that there was some infection lurking somewhere in the body. And there were all the shock uh, therapies. So uh, insulin, metrazole, and then ECT, and lobot- lobotomy, which is the second uh, Nobel Prize. So this is this was the old somatic psychiatry. Right. So this is why uh, I, I designated from the uh, from the neo somatic. Um, um, and and it's also important to say that while this happened in psychiatry, so this kind of somatic. Uh, um, radical somatic treatment. There was also a development of dynamic psychiatry. So the other part of it, which Nathan Hale uh, writes beautifully about in these two volumes was that, uh, you know, the other way psycho- psychiatrists would find their way out of these asylum was uh, dynamic psychiatry, which was the American version of psychoanalysis in psychiatric institutions. Mm-hmm. It was a more uh, eclectic, uh, more pragmatic um kind of psychoanalysis um with you know adolf meyer here from hopkins and william White from uh, washington and the manningers and in, in, uh later in kansas but this kind of so so the you have this this somatic and this psychodynamic these two minds mm-hmm. but after the war after world war Two. um these uh, radical somatic uh, treatments were very were harshly criticized, so uh, the, most of them were discontinued. But in 1954 uh, began what I call the neo-somatic revolution. So, um, so it began with the introduction of Thorazine, yeah, uh, you know, the, the neuroleptic drug that was. Um, seen in psychiatry as, you know, the cheapest, most humane, effective treatment of psychosis. Mm-hmm. And it was part of a larger revolution that uh, was initiated by uh, John F. Kennedy with The New Frontier. And it followed the uh, deinstitutionalization and, you know, the community psychiatry. Community psychiatry right? right. right, So I what I try to show how this revolution in the sense of, you know, um, changing shifting paradigm uh, happened during the the four decades that i that I cover mm-hmm. um, and how you know this kind of very medical uh, view of psychoanalyst um, shifted with the shift in psychiatry right um,
0: right I mean because we you know you think about the birth of psychoanalysis you know in in america and it's a a medical uh, <laughs> forceps mm-hmm. a c-section you know but it's very it's a very medicalized um birth in that you know to um to be an analyst one had to um be an md and um and so in in this book you you sort of weave back and forth like the tension that's at the very heart of that marriage. And this book is really also about a divorce. I think. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's right. the, like you begin to see like the unraveling and you're cheating on me with, you know, yes. with, with, a, yes. with, a, with neuro, with a, you know, with a neurologist, what are you doing? Um, so you know we, we, i i wanted to ask if you could imagine you know so here you are you're you're you when you're working on this book or before you were working on this book you're working in israel you don't know a lot about the american psychoanalytic scene you know and then you start to do all this reading and you as you said you were surprised how much like the how many different schools of thought and all that was going on um and uh and and yet you know you know the ways in which medicine and the medicalization of psychoanalysis has come to to um uh, to sort of i don 't know how would you say to just it to, it sort of destroyed itself i mean there 's a destruction at the heart of that of that marriage but what if we were to imagine um had american uh if if we could even say but had American psychoanalysis not started off um, you, you know in uh, medicalized um what do you imagine the treatment of psychosis would look like in America today?
1: So I think it, it's a complicated story somehow, you know, we needed this. I think this marriage was needed. Uh, <laughs> and I'm probably going to say something unpopular, but I, I think we should reconsider <laughs> uh, the ex, whether it, it, it was such a bad uh, relationship. But um you know, in I have this chapter in the book uh, which I entitled "Raven in White Coats." Yeah. Uh, re- re- uh, you know, rephrasing Freud's quote that American and psychoanalysis were uh, so ill adapted that uh, it was as though a raven were to put on a white shirt <laughs> for for love the American. Yeah. But uh, but uh, no, he had I think he had a very conflictual relationship Indeed. to them and and to schizophrenia. So mm-hmm. it was both of them. But in, in this chapter, I show how, on the one hand, the medicalization of American psychoanalysis was uh, psychoanalysts' royal road uh, to the motherland of psychiatry, so to psychiatric hospitals. Mm-hmm. So it was in these hospitals, basically, because of medicine, that these analysts... Uh, we're offered the opportunity to to observe and to treat severely psychotic patients mm-hmm. But on the other hand being part of this medical profession completely shaped the the identity of uh, American psychoanalysis and uh, you know, whatever happened in in psychiatry uh, had an effect on psychoanalysis in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Rosen, who is, uh, um, wrote the book about the historiography uh, of psychoanalysis, said that, um, and I think Edith Kurzweil also uh, mentioned that or she had a similar idea in her book uh, *The Freudians*, that each uh, country creates the Freud it needs. Yeah. So uh, the psychoanalysis that is uh, suitable for the for the culture. So in France, it was uh, and still is. It's a very intellectual uh, Freud. Uh, in Germany and in some South American countries, it's a very political Freud. And in America, it, it is a very medicalized Freud. Mm-hmm. And so it was this kind of this this relationship, um, you know. Th- there was a codependency, if you want, because <laughs> psychiatry needed psychoanalysis as mm-hmm. as a way out of the asylums. Um, they needed some kind of, a, of of a science, some kind of a theory, and mm-hmm. some kind of a, of a technique. And psychoanalysis needed psychiatry as a way to legitimize the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, but what uh, these strange bedfellows in this, uh, if you want marriage of convenience, as uh, Maxwell Gitelson <laughs> uh, once said, yeah. they gave birth to, uh, to a very specific uh, child, you know, to this eclectic and pragmatic dynamic psychiatry that was practiced in, um, in, within, in, in institutions with mm-hmm. very severely ill patients. Right. so so yes you know if we go back to your question everything um that happened in american psychiatry affected psychoanalysis so it's hard to think about american psychoanalysis without uh without its relationship to psychiatry yep. and especially when it comes to schizophrenic patients because um they were always uh, the the paradigmatic patients of psychiatry, unlike mm. the neurotic that were, you know, the the, the patients of psychoanalysis.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it would be hard to think. Right. It, to it, think it is it. hard. I was like, wow, what if I found mm. myself reading the book, asking, I wonder, gosh, it's so incredible, like the back and forth. And like, it's sort of like, you know, you've put your hand through a window by accident and you have to pull it back out. Oh, Hello. Oh, sorry <laughs> it's okay we're, we're live oh, sorry, we're, sorry. we're alive and well we're live <laughs> and this is a labor of love new books and psychoanalysis all kinds of real things happen in fact my neighbors are now coming home and like the door will open you'll hear the door opening and closing in my building uh, and, but but it you know it, it's really like you know I was saying it's sort of like you your hand goes through the window and you have to pull it back out without hurting yourself and it's like look at and 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 in a, in a sense what Happened with the treatment of psychosis, you know, it it it's it tells the story of of this you know what this di- uh, this divorce is. You yes. can view it through the prism, and the book very much so does, of thinking about the treatment of psychosis. Um,
1: And I I would just maybe say one more thing that the when, you know, when they finally got the divorce, these two professions, schizophrenia was left to psychiatry. So they took this child Mm -hmm. and uh, the new babe
0: of psychoanalysis was the borderline patient. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and it's really, I mean, I feel like that's the moment when I became a clinician right around that time when that was happening and probably yourself as well. And you're wondering, Mm -hmm. is this patient a borderline? Is this patient, do we call this patient a borderline? But I think the patient is psychotic. Oh, oh, you know, well, I have to call her a borderline in order to work with her. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, to legitimize that that I that I can I can actually see this person in my private practice without right. um, them you know having to having to interface with a psychiatrist, right? Um, you know, and this is
1: also the moment of the of you know the the the, the late the late eighties, but still with the with the effect of the DSM three. where we had to suddenly say, you know, what exactly this patient is suffering from and, uh, you know, with our um, needing needing to deal with this, uh, you know, emperor's new clothes, as Uh, I called it.
0: Um, Totally. I mean, I I remember I used to have to call, I used to have to have patients who... I understood to be psychotic, but who were not previously diagnosed by a psychiatrist as as such, but, oh, and I would always have to get the permission of a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. to treat them in my private practice. It was considered like, you know, due diligence that you get the psychiatrist to say this person can benefit from a talk therapy, talking therapy. And um and without that I would have some supervisor say, I can't supervise you on this case if you don't get the psychiatrist to approve. Right. Right. And, you know, talk about cumbersome, um and mm-hmm. you know, and, and sort of burdensome and then of course to tell the patient you need to go see you need to go elsewhere in order to come back to be with me.
1: Right. And I think what I what I found cuz you know my my anger was at uh you know the the DSM the insurance companies I mm-hmm. do uh, you know all this management uh, uh of psychiatry but and and this, the the big pharmas but what what I found when I when I it's one more surprise that I had was that um that during this time that and, and perhaps it's because of the history of the relation between, between psychiatry and psychoanalysis. This shift, this move from, from Freud to Kraplin, or from, mm-hmm. from the mind to the brain uh, or from, you know, what is behind the symptom, as mm-hmm. Manninger taught us, to what we see, like what are the, the, the list of uh, unambiguous, uh, observable symptoms. right. right that the same thing happened in in psychoanalysis. So uh, it's not as if it was only external. But in psychoanalysis, what I found, even though it, I cannot say it again about, I, I cannot say anything about American psychoanalysis as such. And uh, the one thing I, I always uh, liked um, was uh, one of my favorite colleagues uh, now at Cornell, Ted Shapiro, who wrote back then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that with all psychoanalyst excitement about, uh, you know, this shift uh, from, from the uh, what is behind, what is hidden, to what is there, what we see, uh, was happening not only in the DSM, but also with all these brain scans, right? So he, he would say that, you know, even if we could uh, somehow see, uh, how the brain lights up when when somebody hates um, uh, broccoli? You know, exa- exactly. <laughs> so he said, "Okay, but we, we will never know whether it's like you know a deep, uh, long hatred to uh, a mother or a dislike to broccoli." Right. <laughs> but he he was he was not the uh, majority. There were uh, mm-hmm. many psychoanalysts at that time that. Um, and and the analysts who were invested in schizophrenia that began to see schizophrenia as a genetic biological disorder. You know they saw it as uh, as nothing that psychoanalytic uh, treatment can help except with you know some kind of supportive uh, um, therapy. And and at the same time they saw borderline disorder as uh, something that is caused by um, you know by the environment or development circumstances so you know suitable for psychoanalytic study and treatment right. so i saw within psychoanalysis within their writing that they uh their criticism uh severe criticism of anyone and everyone who uh, claimed to successfully treat psychotic patients with psychoanalysis. And, it, and when I say everyone, it's, you know, Kleinians, but also uh, the uh, Washington school of um, psychiatry. Uh, so the Chestnut launched generation from Rothman, Searles, even uh, Hartman and his writing about uh, uh, schizophrenia and aggression. So, they were somehow within the staying within the psychiatric establishment um, as psychoanalysts, but uh, not thinking psychoanalytically about um, about uh, psychotic patients
0: right. They were sort of handing them over uh, rather yes. than then claiming them, saying, "Okay, okay, we'll give you this, you know right. Yeah. Right. It's like a like a card game. All right, I'll yes. you know raise you 5, you know. <laughs> yes. If, if you let me live, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Um you do you have a couple more minutes cuz we're almost I had, have. Okay, good cuz I we I there's something else that I I really want you to talk about. Um so uh, so you you suggest so here's here's Orna coming to America, reading about all these different American you know schools of psychoanalysis getting more and more familiar, and she encounters um this sort of you know huge relational turn that is you know begins that sort of begins to take hold with uh uh you know Mitchell and um, greenberg's publication on, a book on object object relations I forget the year that was eighty three or something anyway yes. you know so we have we have In the book, you seem to be suggesting that um, following the relational turn, many American analysts um, became very interested in ideas about, you know, sort of the psychotic core or or psychotic aspects of functioning or psychotic parts of the otherwise um, neurotic individual or, you know, whoever it might be put. Um, But not so much interested in treating people with psychosis. You are actually, you do a whole... uh, review of psychoanalytic dialogues. And it was very eye opening to me. I wasn't surprised per se, but I was like, wow, that's really, they they really aren't working with psychosis, but there's a lot of interest in psychosis or self states, or then there's dissociation and Mm -hmm. on and on. So um, I want to ask you to think about this as a clinician. Um, mm. cause I, I know, I think you believe it's a shame that psychosis is good enough for theory, but not good yes. enough for treatment. Um, right. and so this is the, this is, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I want you to do. And, you know, <laughs> I can't always, can't always get what you want, but you know, so, so if you could offer the field in America, you know, an interpretation, an intervention that might shake loose uh, what looks like um, our reluctance to work with psychosis because in the book you do say it is not the insurance companies. It's not the loss of the brick mother. It's not, you know, the, the insurance companies, but there's something else going on, right. In, in American psychoanalysis. So so what can you, can you, can you give this a shot? Yeah. So
1: (laughs) you're challenging me. Yeah. No, I think this was this was one of my first uh, points of entry into this whole project because in the mid-late 90s, the, the relational school of American psychoanalysis became very popular in Israel uh, and mainly among psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapists, less so among the psychoanalysts from the Israeli society, which is a little bit like the Royal Society and you know, are very um, um, exclusive. So um, – this was the kind of contemporary literature that we were reading and I was, as you said, I was surprised to find how much interest there was in this primitive parts of the personality, the psychotic, and how little clinical intervention they actually showed with with psychotic people because I was always trying also to see whether they report cases. And I found in this specific thought collective of the relational school, Um, And specifically in the publication in this Psychoanalytic Dialogues, as you said, that, um, you know, there were all possible psychotic parts and elements and defenses and dynamics. But the schizophrenic, if they were, they were uh, the mothers of the of the patient. So I was. Thoughts I, I thought that I was witnessing some kind of a return to of the some form of the seduction theory, you know that it's always about some bad Bad parent out there or right. even worse the schizophrenic Schizophrenogenic mother
0: right real trauma. Yeah,
1: yes like something and and I know that you feel my pain because you're you're a big believer in the <laughs> Death instinct, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel your <laughs> but, pain
1: <laughs> uh, but there is something in, in, inside, you know. So I think that bottom line, uh, the, the psychotic schizophrenic patients need, I think, what Henry Ray called the brick mother. But, and, and it can be an asylum and it can be a practice. It can be a house. It doesn't matter. But that it allows this kind of protective frame for both the analyst and the patient. To to explore this kind of world, you know, to um, to be able to um, transform what is uh, um, still in 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 you know in forms of, of of you know unthought, undigestible, unmentalized, and that it needs to be done, or it can only be done basically in an atmosphere that understands that. Um, that we cannot come to treat these patients from a megalomaniac place with with too much of grandiose expectations, but to understand and accept that, you know, they live on these primitive edges, as Ogden says, and that we would be there with them in the in these trenches uh, if we want to be able to offer uh, some kind of meaning to to this catastrophe. So, the point uh that I make is that it's good not only for patients and for analysts but also for the survival of psychoanalysis you know for for it, for it to survive as as a theory that still produces knowledge mm-hmm. um, because there is something, and I know that you know that because i read <laughs> I read your piece with uh, meeting this uh, amazing patients. But that they challenge us, you know, they they challenge us not only as individuals, but also they shake us, you know, they shake our defenses, they are uh, challenging our, our thought collectives, mm-hmm. they, they force us to think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we know that, you know, whatever is repressed is coming back or whatever is split off. Becomes persecutory to right. taunt it, come to to bite us
0: from behind. We, so, we say we say here in America that chickens have come home to roost. Okay, it's right. no, it's it's it's, uh, it's actually Malcolm X. Uh, uh, okay, yeah. so that's a good reference. It is a good reference. Yeah, we're in good company. We are.
1: So I think that you know, uh, if if psychoanalysts want to. Sh- this profession to survive as psychoanalysis and not as anything else. They have to become specialists in this area of catastrophic anxieties, you know, of death and violence and destruction. And it's only by treating such patients that they can learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's both, you know, helping the, saving this, the, the, or helping, not saving, but helping the individu- individual, individual, patient from this internal inferno, and also society because we see what happens when madness is not
0: uh
1: is not treated we all we all hope to wake up on uh wednesday yeah
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) and survive the catastrophe right Right. but also it's it's really from from you know from a place of loving and psychoanalysis as a as a um, as a field, as a discipline that creates knowledge, and that is, for me, feels like in a in a long slumber,
0: you know, mm-hmm.
1: that needs mm-hmm. to be, as you say, shake loose or, or awaken. hmm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, i I love. I mean, I love. I love how you end the book. Um, and uh, you know, with and what you're saying now, because it really, it really made complete sense to me that if, as a field, we Disavow, split off, whatever you want to put it. But mm-hmm. I would consider the death instinct, the the parts of ourselves that are more destructive of self and others. And instead, we imagine again. It seems so American to think that the the something outside of me made me yeah. this way, right? You know yeah. that we're a culture that likes to blame and point outside. But meanwhile, you know everybody's got a gun. You know, yes. like it's. <laughs> It's like, well, you know, so what, so, so how do we as analysts, what, what don't we want to see, what don't American analysts particularly want to see about, about destructive aggression, um, and the extreme, you know, living on, you know, sort of extreme psychic experiences that are, it's disconcerting, but it's also human. Yes. It's, it's human, you know, loving, loving love is easy. Um, yeah. You know, hating hate is easy, but, mm-hmm. but, but ending up someplace else beyond loving love and hating hate is, you know, where, I mean, that, that's where analysts, I think that's where we have to do our work. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Live with the, with this kind of tension. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, my dear, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, this has very been, this is, yeah. yeah, right. It's like, <laughs> this is, no, this has been terrific. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, uh, really good. I think that you um, have taught people, um, the listeners have, have probably learned, a tremendous amount. Um, and so um, from uh, New Books in Psychoanalysis, um, we want to thank you for talking with us. Um, and uh, we look forward to um, your book on Klein and her... Um, marginalization in America (laughs) and and to the listeners um you know thanks again for um for for loving and listening to new books and psychoanalysis we love you all back and uh for now goodbye bye.